Welcome back to Sound Up Governance. Today's episode is part two of my hang with my great friend and the new chair of the Ontario Securities Commission, Kevin Cowan. If you haven't listened to part one, what you missed was an awesome and nerdy conversation between two people who have spent an uncountable number of combined hours eating, sleeping, and breathing corporate governance from hugely different perspectives. That and the story of how we met, which was through our other shared passion, music. Today's episode still has lots of governance nerdiness, but also a lot more music talk and a bit of playing. In fact, we recorded the entire conversation with guitars on our laps and took lots of jam breaks. Way back at the beginning of our chat, I asked Kev about his professional journey. Here's how that went down. I want to know about your new job. Yeah. Okay. Can you describe first... Because it's a it's an astonishing path. Can you? And I hope I'm I'm free in terms of time, so you can kick me out. I have to you leave want. for band rehearsal at about four o'clock. Okay, tell me about your band practice first. <laughs> well, uh, so I play in a few uh, hobby bands. Uh, they're all cover bands, as I was saying earlier. Um, the one that I play most regularly with is a classic rock cover band. Uh, the my brother and I go back to high school. He's the bass player. The singer we picked up in high school, and the drummer we picked up in 1984. So we've played together a long time. We play all the usual stuff of Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin. We have a singer who can pull off Led Zeppelin, so that's, that's great. That's amazing. Yeah, that's tough to find. Uh, you know, everything from ZZ Top to Rolling, a lot of Rolling Stones, a little bit of Beatles, U2, uh, all of that stuff, and it's a lot of fun. So. We tend to, when we have a gig coming up, we get together and rehearse, usually just once. So we have a gig on December 16th, so we're going to rehearse tonight. We'll run through a few sets and mix it up a bit. So what's your favorite ZZ Top album? Dig Wello. Yeah, me too. Yeah, It's like a greatest hits album almost. Yes, it, it is. And uh, it's still when they were... I don't mind the pop shift that Aerosmith and ZZ Top took good for them but when you go back to those earlier albums like toys in the attic or dig Wello, that to me is where the purity of those bands were they're also phenomenally well-produced albums in my opinion i completely agree yeah i deliberately tried to steal dusty's bass tone from that album on a, a specific track on our new album i just like i i love the sounds but i think there are people out there who wouldn't call that one of their early albums right because they were like 10 years in already that's that a great point. point yeah i'm talking i'm in 2022 now right yeah so it's all relative but i think you know i feel the same as you you know i'd take that over tres hombres any day mm-hmm. although i love that album yeah it's there's just something about it. Even the covers they chose were so good. And oh. like, you know, it's like doing Motown cover to start off the whole thing. It's just delicious. I love that album. I um, One of my very first concert experiences when, when they toured Diguello, and those were the days before tragedy and they hadn't separated fans from the stage. And I was literally leaning on the stage Where? watching them play at the Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah. It was amazing. So big show. Big show. Really big show. Must I think that's when they hit it really big with Deguello. Like you say, almost every song's a hit. Yeah, and, and even the ones that weren't hit. I mean, I don't really love Esther Be the One. but uh, if That's cut, the one song I would cut. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? It could have ended right before that. And You're it, like, right. it been a, The album would have been too short. Yeah. But that stuff they do, you know, um, like, you know, Cheap Sunglasses is uh, one of my favorite songs to play. I don't know if I've lifted this stuff. And then, oh yeah, great stuff. And then, uh, haven't done this in a while. Right. So you know that's an Isaac Hayes song. Yeah, great stuff. 
Yeah. Oh, hey, I well love done. That That's, stuff. You, you nailed I'm that. Just, I, that it's just ears. That's what I learned in my band. Um, oh, that album's so good. I'm sorry. I'm just listening. I'm thinking through we the do track a, like, list. The thing I love doing is stringing medleys together. So we have a Led Zeppelin medley that goes through four or five, maybe six songs, all tight together, just parts of each song. And I love doing that kind of thing That's with classic so rock. Okay. Well, the, the, we got to have a ZZ Top conversation someday. Um, okay. So you're going to band practice, but... The other part of your life that's really important right now. So, okay, tell, tell, just describe wherever you want to start. Because basically, from my perspective, your life began when I met you. And I don't think that's prob- <laughs> I don't. I'm guessing that's not true. So tell me the, whatever part of your journey you want to tell sure, us that, well, that took you a, from wherever to now. Yeah, just a quick overview. And so in terms of my working life, I started life as a lawyer. And I was very much on the typical lawyer track. I was at a large Toronto law firm, uh, and I went from summer student to articling student to associate to partner. So I was exactly on that track. That was a great experience. And about 10 years in, in 1997, on January 1st, I made a New Year's resolution that I wanted to leave the practice of law within two years. I was in no rush. Things were going well. I really enjoyed it. Um, But it was just time for a change. And then in April of that year, I was reading a uh, Ontario Reports, a lawyer's magazine or lawyer's uh, publication, and they were advertising for a lawyer at the Toronto Stock Exchange to come in and help clean up the pump and dump and boiler room activity that was going on in the over-the-counter market. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in my office on the 61st floor of Scotia Plaza with this great view, and while I was reading the ad, I caught myself composing my cover letter. I thought, that's a good sign. Uh, so the next morning I went and sat in the headhunter's office and I said, I know you're looking for sort of a second or third year associate and I'm a 10 year partner, but I really, really want to do this. So I went to the stock exchange and I spent two years writing new roles to clean up all the pump and dump and boiler room activity, worked with a great group of people there and at the Ontario Securities Commission and got all of that done and was thinking, okay, what's next? And I wasn't sure what I was going to do next, but then that in uh, 1999, is when the so-called realignment of all the Canadian stock exchanges occurred. Mm -hmm. And derivatives went to Montreal, senior equities to Toronto, and junior equities were going to a new stock exchange formed from the merger of five junior exchanges across the country, Vancouver, Alberta, Winnipeg, junior list in Montreal, and the -the over-the-counter market in Toronto. So I thought, well, that looks fun. So I hung around to work on that. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, six, seven jobs later, sort of working my way through the exchanges, I ended up moving to Calgary as the president of the Venture Exchange, and then I moved back to Toronto as president of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, And then I went away and worked on, for about four years, on the uh, long-standing effort to create a national or pan-Canadian securities commission in Canada. Um, And uh, we made a lot of progress, but of the nine governments that had signed the deal to do it, eight changed power through elections. So it was very difficult to sort of keep the momentum up. So that one's been put on pause for yet, you know, until we have another chapter where that gets pushed ahead. And then I um, joined the board of the Ontario Securities Commission. Just like a few days ago. <laughs> well, no. I, oh, I, just, yeah, just yeah, being I, a chair a few yeah, days ago. Yeah, I became a board member in, uh, in January. And uh, we've gone through sort of a very, uh, you know, a, a lot of change in the last yeah. few months. And then just last week, I was um, appointed chair. So, okay. This is something I sincerely don't understand well. And so I suspect a lot of other people don't. Tell me a bit through the lens of, 
And I know when we're talking about corporate governance and the levers that the stock exchange and the Securities Commission have to pull are mostly compliance oriented, right? So that compliance and governance aren't the same, but they are related. But let's just imagine that whenever we're talking about governance, we're talking about the levers that those two organizations are or institutions are able to pull. How, tell me where the, like, try to describe to me if you can, where the, the, where the authority of one stops and the other one begins and how they work together and, and why they're important to each other or not. Sure. Yeah. No, there's, it's a, it is a really important question. And there's lots of different players in the market that play roles. The stock exchanges, the securities commissions, uh, the new SRO formed from the merger of IROC and MFDA, et cetera. SRO means self-regulatory organization. The Ontario Securities Commission defines an SRO like this, an entity that is organized for the purpose of regulating the operations and the standards of practice and business conduct of its members and their representatives with a view to promoting the protection of investors and the public interest. I'll put a link to the definition page in the show notes. Um, and in, in Ontario, it's even more complicated because you have FISRA, which you know does other parts of the financial side of securities. Um, but stock exchanges are you know uh, bodies that people come to voluntarily uh, to list their shares, so that investors uh, have more opportunity for liquidity and are more uh, likely, therefore, to or more willing to invest in the company. Stock exchanges set, uh, people think of them as a regulator. Y we could argue about whether that's the case, but they set listing standards. So like any brand, um, they set the standards for the quality of the product. In the case of a stock exchange, it's the financial and other tests that a company has to meet to be listed on that stock exchange. And the market will see that as a certain stamp of approval of, at a certain level. Uh, that it has met those standards. Now, it does get a little bit gray because the stock exchange is licensed by the Securities Commission, and the Securities Commission will often, you know, require or the stock exchange will volunteer um, that they, you know, do some things that might go beyond that. But essentially, at the end of the day, it really comes down to, um, you know, brand standards. The Securities Commission, the foundation is something, you know, very different. Going back to the 1930s and the aftermath of the Great Depression and the stock market bubble and all of that, um, the whole idea of investor protection by a government agency gained more and more prominence. And that's what the Securities Commission does. Um, it does it various ways. It does it by, um, you know, licensing brokers, um, which are also overseen through the new uh, SRO, of course. Um, one that's very familiar to people, it reviews prospectuses. So if a company is going to raise money, uh, it has to give a document filled with all the material information about that investment. And if it's going public, that document has to be reviewed by the Securities Commission staff to ensure that it meets the standard of so-called, um, you know, uh, full through and plain disclosure. Um, and there's an interesting debate there because the job of the Securities Commission traditionally, historically, is really to manage regulatory risk, not to manage investment risk. Um, there is some blue sky so-called jurisdiction in the Securities Commission, and if you know they they can step in there, but it's really about making sure that the disclosure is adequate. So that's a big part of what the Securities Commission does, among other things as well. So I suspect there are times, and I suspect you've lived through several of these. I'm sure you can give examples, but you don't have to if there if you can't share them. I suspect there are times where one of those institutions 
want something that they don't have the authority to get, but the other does, how do they, or do they work together? Do they collaborate on those fronts? Absolutely. And and, and a great example would be around diversity. Okay. Um, So, you know, several years ago, when all of us, uh, everyone was pushing to find ways to get more diversity on boards. And of course, the early focus was very much around gender, but it obviously goes much beyond uh, gender. Uh, But the Securities Commission, in the absence of legislative change, doesn't have a speedy path um, to, you know, promote or require diversity. Um, So, for example, they could work closely with the stock exchange to say, okay, what are your policies going to be? And are you thinking about doing this? Now, in that case, it it very much, um, you know, does default to ultimately to legislation. And we're now seeing the corporate statutes uh, move in that direction. But that's the kind of thing where the Ontario Securities Commission, for example, and other securities commissions had a policy objective. And there was various things the stock exchanges could do, um, starting with just communicating with their companies mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, encouraging disclosure or that kind of thing. So there there are areas where it might, might cross over. Another would be um, like a really, um, probably an even better example is majority voting for boards. Because the Securities Commission didn't really have the authority or jurisdiction or the legislation uh, to bring us into the modern age in terms of majority voting. And the stock exchanges, as a uh, requirement of their listing standards and that brand uh, you know, reputation and standard we were talking about earlier, uh, could actually require that. Um, so, and, and it was because the corporate legislation was so antiquated, it was sort of done in a, in a funny way. But the result at the end of the day was the stock exchanges led the way on majority voting because they had the tools and the ability to do it for public companies. So just for reference, before majority voting, a director in most listed companies in Canada could get elected with one vote as long as, because there was no vote against, or it was all just, it was vote for or withhold. Right? That's so, right. right. And so the idea with the stock exchange is, well, we'll treat with withhold as a negative vote. So you could actually start to bring in, in the absence of legislative change, which takes a longer period of time, the stock exchanges could act more quickly. And that that's actually a much better example than the diversity one I gave, because diversity was really more the stock exchanges just facilitating the policy objective or trying to help with what the securities commissions themselves were doing. Majority voting, the stock exchanges stepped into the breach to make it happen more quickly. Life turns down, turn it around. Nice. That was a quick excerpt of us playing through one of Kev's tunes that he'd just shown me, including him taking a killer solo. So he's playing in several bands, writing his own music. I wanted to know more. Okay, so then, like, the, you, what's the what's the objective here? And I'm asking this. It's, no, it's the most annoying question because I'm a musician, and talking about objectives is really kind of beside the point. But like, what's the What's the bullseye? You write some tunes, yeah. then so, what happens? So, Matt, I play in two or three different hobby cover bands. 
And none of them do we do any of my original music. And so my bullseye uh, would be at some point to have a band where I'm actually playing my original music as well as just playing in a cover band. Okay. And is that like, what's stopping you from that? Do you, I, I think I remember seeing, you, I came and saw you play a little show and you're there, as far as I remember, you were playing some of your own tunes. We, we did that night. You're right. That night we did do a couple of our originals. And I think it's really just getting the time and the dedicated effort to get some guys over who actually want to do it because it's easy to default to the the cover bands. Right. Okay. So the the other thing that it, that occurs to me as I wander through the this world and the intersection between the like corporate governance and senior executives and boards and all that and music is you know all the big accounting firms for example have battles of the bands like a lot of the law firms do this stuff too. Why why aren't people out there with music as the part of their identity? Why don't they like you are? I you that's how we met. Which I'll, we'll tell the story later. But why do you think there aren't more people who are just like you know what? I'm a CEO and a musician. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe life just gets in the way, and you you have to have a threshold level of passion to make the time for it. I guess, and life is busy, you know. So I, I don't know that I have a great answer for you, but that's probably what come to mind for me. Okay. Well, then let's ask for an instinctive guess. How, how many? What percentage would you say of the of the executives in your world? What percentage do you think are musicians? Or maybe a better question is: you think it's higher, lower, or the same as the proportion of of the rest of the world? Oh, I would say it's probably about the same. Everywhere I go, I meet some people who, um, you know, uh, you know, dabble on guitar or dabble on piano. Many people have taken formal lessons, but don't keep it up later when life gets in the way. And then I'd say, um, you know, there's always a core of sort of 5% maybe who actually put enough effort in it to go to a rehearsal, get out with some guys and play the odd gig. So then we're talking one in 20 Senior executives and corporate board members are probably pretty kick-ass musicians. I'd like to think it's that high. I, uh, I'm not entirely sure. I don't disagree with you. Yeah. I think part of the reason I'm asking is that, like, I think there's a lot of them out there. There's a lot, and it kind of baffles me that it's not a bigger part of their outward-facing identity. Because the moment I tell people that I'm a musician, all of a sudden the relationship is so much better, <laughs> you know, people, everyone can relate to music. Not many people can relate to well, the Well, I guess it becomes stuff. more multidimensional, a relationship, you know, when you have something to talk about. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, most of the executives I meet, um, most of them have some kind of passion or hobby, at least when it gets past the, you know, the ages uh, where your kids are busy and you're basically a taxi driver. Um, you know, for I know there's a lot of executives who cycle. I'm seeing a lot of uh, yeah. Cyclists. It's the new golf. It's the new golf. Um, obviously, golf's a big one. Um, cycling is the new golf, like you say, um, and and then some musicians. I'd say it's sort of that's what I see the most. That was another quick clip I grabbed of just Kev sitting there casually jamming while I was dealing with some recording issues. So as many listeners already know, I'm pretty disheartened by the lack of action on the part of boards of directors when it comes to finding ways to bring younger professionals to the table. Sitting with Kev, I thought back to the story that Andrew Escobar shared back in episode five. Thinking about the unbelievable pace of change globally in financial services and us being in an interesting kind of conservative market there, which has benefited us tremendously in, in certain circumstances. One of my 
good friends, who's an, also a former guest on this podcast, a guy named Andrew Escobar, who is mid thirties. He's got already in, in mid thirties, a dozen years of experience on a very sophisticated board. He's he, professionally, he's in open banking. So he's kind of beyond the bleeding edge of where we're at in Canada and being actively discouraged by a lot of corporate leaders who, when he says, you know, should I keep on doing this governance thing? A lot of really big names who I won't mention are telling him, no, no, wait till you just do that later. And I find that all, almost offensive, but I'm curious for your reaction. So I, I was, um, uh, by that example, I was impressed I was sort of flabbergasted um, in, a, in, a, in a really positive way that someone of that demographic would have this interest in governance. And I thought it was fabulous. And it reminded me a little bit, um, you know, when I was in law school, a classmate was Carol Hansel, mm. who was, you know, a really well-known um, corporate governance person. And, and she would talk about corporate governance and I'm going to be honest, I didn't really know what it was. Mm-hmm. It didn't sound very interesting. Mm-hmm. I was sort of amazed. And um, it sort of harkened me back a little bit to that, seeing this young person who was so engaged and, and focused on this. And I disagree with the advice that some people are giving them. I'd say, keep it up. It's going to be better for all of us. Yeah. I mean, my instinct is that if I asked 10 boards you could design the perfect next board member, nine of them would say that. They accidentally decide. But then at the same time, if Andrew were sitting right in front of them, they'd usually find an excuse not to go that direction. And, you know, this is, I sometimes, I wonder if maybe, the, and this is less, it's more a rhetorical comment than a question. I wonder if there's maybe a role, especially going back to the diversity comments earlier for regulators and quasi-regulators to kind of nudge this, you know, nudge boards away from that typical director profile to actually achieve the the board makeup that we really want, which is, you know, not just a bunch of CEOs and lawyers and so on. Yeah. I mean, I think here you're touching on, uh, at least implicitly, um, you know, shades of that diversity. And we tend to think of diversity as, you know, um, uh, gender and race, but diversity includes experience. And, and and that's a really critical component of diversity. And, you know, I hope we have that, or at least people are thinking about that anyway. Most most boards, I think, are using skills matrices and mm-hmm. self-evaluations to try and find out where the gaps are. So you're getting the diversity and experience. Um, but you're right in the sense that, you know, demographics and age and experience and industry, all of those things play on diversity. And you don't want them to, all the boards to look the same. There's another question that I've been kind of obsessed with that has to do with board independence and diversity from a bit of a different angle. Who better to ask than Kev? I I had a question about youth and independence and all that stuff that I actually really want to talk about. So uh, let's both imagine a number and we'll be honest about it. That, like, let's say the median director pay for a TSX 60 board member. Oh, I'm going to, well, first of all, Matt, I'm just not up on this. It doesn't matter. Let's just imagine something because I'm not up on it either. For TSX, not TSX TSX V. TSX 60. Yeah. Median pay. Yeah. Just ballpark. I've got a number. Like everything all in, you know, cash, equity compensation. Yeah. Not chairs. Not chairs, not chairs of committees, just board pen or medium TSX yeah. 60. Mm-hmm. 
125, 150? I was thinking 200, but we're, 200? we're sort okay. of, we're, yeah. we're within a, we're an order yeah. of magnitude. I'm not, I'm no expert on this. Well, we're probably both wrong. Haven't looked in a long time. It doesn't matter. It's still a lot. Um, so here's my question. Do you have to be wealthy to be independent on a TSX 60 board? Well, to be sorry, independent financially or independent as an independent board member? Indep- to be uh, functionally independent, not independent on paper, functionally independent. Well, I think we're into that area of human nature where uh, it's different for everybody, right? And, and your commitment to principle versus where you might subconsciously or otherwise be kind of you know, moved a bit or thinking about your own interest, I don't know. But um, no, I don't, I don't think so. I There's don't think a practical so. side to this, though. I mean, I'm more of an idealist. I don't think oh, so. Oh, me too. Yeah. And I, and I also am a, I don't think, I think we've gone way overboard on independence. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why there's not more non-independent board members. It makes no sense to me. Uh, so I'm not preaching in favor of independence. But I do want to make an argument that, let's say for me, I've never had a corporate job. I worked at a university for 20 years. I've made a lot of really good decisions, but none of them have been financially motivated. And and $200,000 a year would be really meaningful to me, like really meaningful. So it would be really hard for me, especially once I was in there for a while, losing it would matter a lot. And I'm not saying that I would therefore be compromised but the potential is there and that potential is eliminated by being wealthy well maybe uh you know maybe (laughs) independent wealth solves all kinds of conflict issues in life generally so i'm not going to argue that it you know wouldn't have a positive effect on an independent frame of mind but i don't know i i think um I think corporate governance is improving by leaps and bounds. And if you look at the skills matrix and experience and the fact that governance committees are running these processes, and you, in my experience, have some pretty committed chairs of governance committees who are running all of this, and it is it is separated from management. And it um, it's not directly tied to management viewing your decisions as being inconvenient uh, or not supportive of where they want to go necessarily. So I, I, I think we're making lots of progress there. And I'm, you know, you, you can always... You know, uh, within the realm of looking for independence, you can always find ways to shore it up and make sure that it's uh, it's happening. But I think we're making lots of progress. So, and I also think you described a while ago an important set of conditions, which is to reinforce both in advance, but even more importantly afterward, when someone has presented a counterfactual or not supported a decision or whatever powerful thing they've done, as long as they've done it in a constructive way to reinforce that that's important so that when someone does potentially feel conflicted, they still have the confidence that they can disagree without losing their job, for example. Absolutely. To me, it's just fun. Everybody needs to understand and accept and promote and encourage the fact that alternative viewpoints, um, not just people who are doing it for the sake of doing it, but who've thought about it and and put the time and effort into articulating their position is one of the most valuable things in a boardroom. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes say now, and I've been in a lot of boardrooms, and I would estimate that the most common emotion that I see is embarrassment that manifests in, you know, someone's unwillingness to say something in the plenary of a boardroom, but they'll say it immediately after in the, or, or. I have a no water cooler rule that I try to impose in anything, or I'm sorry, not impose, try to encourage anything that I'm in. So 
anything to be said gets said in the room. You don't go into the hall. You don't go down to the water hall cooler and talk about it after the fact. And you, you've got to promote that culture and that environment where people do that. And if, if somebody, you know, I, did, I can think of a few meetings ago, I was involved in a not-for-profit board and um, somebody was clearly embarrassed about a position they had taken. And, you know, I hope I didn't go overboard, but I made a real point of tying to how that view helped us in our decision and made our decision stronger. Yeah. And there's, we can imagine any number of reasons why anyone might feel embarrassed under any sort of set of circumstances and how, how, it's such a moving target, mm-hmm. but to acknowledge that this, just because it's a place that drips with, you know, solemnity and gravitas, that it's still, you know, we're a bunch of fallible, really flawed people who are going to mess up a lot. Mm-hmm. How do we get the most out of each other under those circumstances? Yeah. And that, that sort of embarrassment thing can sometimes maybe tie into somebody in the boardroom, you know, going to school on an issue yeah. rather than, you know, expressing an alternative view, which they should not be embarrassed about. You know, I think we should all try to strive to take the going to school part of it, you know, not do too much of that in the boardroom, can get a little inefficient for the timing. At one point, Kev realized that he recognized the bass guitar I'd brought because he'd seen it in one of my band's videos. This caused us to veer off into a conversation about music, memory, curiosity, and aging. Now, I, 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 I don't know if that's the same bass, it's but definitely it's definitely the, the same, same strings you played in your cover of Ramble On. Yes, by Led same Zeppelin, bass, yeah. Which is unbelievable, Matt. Just blew me away. Thanks. You know, I, I got to give more credit to Casey than anybody. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Not just the stuff that, all the brilliant stuff that he does with our band, but he gets this inspiration to rethink songs that he loves and every single time it's like he'll come into a rehearsal and say guys i got this new idea and we're all just like where did that come from it's so good it's so it, and it it's such a great balance of reverence for the original material and an opportunity to showcase us right what we're up to and I'm really spoiled. Well, of course, I love all your original music, and the latest album is fantastic. Thanks, and, man. and the instrumental on it is probably, you know, the, the title track instrumental is probably my favorite of all of your originally recorded stuff. It's Thanks. just so fantastic. But I do love what you've done with some covers and rock and roll. I'm a big Zeppelin fan. So here Don't what ask you've me done. to remember that one. That yeah. was just got that massive riff, the like 16 bar riff that, I, that I'll never remember if my life depends on Oh, wait, on wait it. you mean in your own intro? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was blown away because I, I actually meant to ask you when you guys were recording that and before you actually get to the song and you have your whole funky uh, original intro up front, how on earth do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so in cases like that, because Casey does have, every once in a while, he'll, he'll say, okay, I'm sorry, guys, but this one's weird. And a lot of the time what he'll do is he'll record it at home just on a guitar or whatever and send it to us, and we get the time to absorb it before we walk in the room. And that's part of the, that's a really important piece of the puzzle is internalizing it. So not just so that you remember it, but so that you've got it solid enough that you can make it feel good. 
Because those are two different things, right? It's hard to make something feel good when you're barely remembering it. Well, it, it, that part just blew me away, remembering that. And it made me think of I me, mean, Matt, you're an awful lot younger than me. But as you get to my age, if you're an executive who also plays music, it's great. Because we keep hearing that at our age to ward off, you know, uh, Alzheimer's and things. To have either a new language or a, or a new instrument is a great thing to do. And I was thinking of you memorizing that, thinking, well, yeah, that'd be a pretty good way to keep my mind active. You know... There's an interesting thing, and I actually was having a conversation with my dad yesterday or the day before about this, exactly what we're talking about now, which is even in music, for better or for worse, you I'm sure you come across this too, you meet people who have so deeply latched on to one way of doing things, and their mind is closed to learning new stuff, or they're not willing to put in the time versus the other people you meet where when they see something they don't understand, they're just like, what is that? I need to know that. How do I do that? How do I use it? You know, so there's, and I think that there's this same variance in all the different parts of my life, but I wonder, and I'm sure there's no science about this. I wonder if the curiosity plus music is really where the magic happens in terms of of the memory and retention and aging and all that stuff. And I wonder if we, we can all sit down and just play the same old shit we've always played. Yeah. Well, I had I completely agree with where you're headed with those comments. And I had uh, an amazing experience years ago, probably seven or eight years ago now, pre-pandemic. Uh, my family was at the cottage for the summer. So I rented this drum kit behind us. And my goal for the summer was to learn to play drums. And I was very frustrated for five or six weeks. My mind wasn't processing four different body parts doing four different things. Yeah. But just as I was about to give up, um, I was working on something that had three body parts moving with more of a simpler of the fourth part. And all of a sudden, it was like a a window opened in my brain. The synapse formed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And this little bit of light came through and it was like a click. And all of a sudden, it was there. And I almost felt like my mind expanding, or at least taking on greater competency. It was amazing. Well, that's basically everything I have to share from my amazing hang with Kev Cowan. Putting this episode together, I worried a bit that it would feel like we were bouncing all over the place with no narrative thread or valuable information. Sitting with it now, in addition to the value of Kev's governance insights and musical talent, the most important piece here to me is that we need reminders that even the most powerful and influential people, those who are most embedded into our markets and systems, are fully formed human beings. I mean, of course they are, but the headlines and regulations and all that other publicly available kind of trivializes the people. Lucky for me, Kev is no trivial person, but rather a brilliant, thoughtful, talented, and hilarious dude. Before we wrap up entirely, I'd heard a rumor that Kev might have been the inspiration for the character Garth in Wayne's World. I had to ask him about that. So one of the things I learned hanging out with with Kev and Eleanor, and I'm looking at a a drum with with Garth's face on it from Wayne's World, and I want to know the connection between you and Garth. Well, I went to, and, and, you know, I've I've heard that firsthand. This has been denied, but um, I think it's pretty, I went to the same high school as Mike Myers. I played in a in a basement rock band. Our singer's name was Wayne. His hair was parted in the middle. Uh, we used to have these big parties, and tons of people were there, and everyone knew about it. And I'm guessing that somewhere in there, there is a mix of some of that somehow filtered into, you know, the writing of all of that. I I had long frizzy hair just like Garth. I wore ridiculous glasses just like Garth. And the night, the very first night, the skit was on 
uh, SNL, uh, the phone just started ringing off the wall. And uh, so I'm not, you know, uh, Mike Myers is an incredible talent. I love everything he's done. Um, but many people believe that there's some very direct uh and even if there Influence is, it takes that. nothing away from him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I, I'll make I'll make sure to include a photo of the Garth drum. 